You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Our Father in heaven, would you now just help us to see the glory of such a familiar passage. God, this is such a familiar story. We've heard it, and yet I suspect that we will be thinking about this passage and the glory contained therein for all eternity. And so, Father, would you open the eyes of our heart right now so that we may behold wonderful things uh, from what Luke has to tell us about the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you redefine glory for us in what we're about to see. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I have been trying to figure out how to introduce this passage. It's so familiar. I mean, it is so familiar that at times uh, we can feel like it's just one more thing to check off, right? Like, I got to go shopping. I got to go to a Christmas party. I got to read the Christmas story. I got to do this. I got to do that. It's just one more thing to sort of check off at this time of year. Uh, And so here's where I want to start this morning, just to sort of focus our hearts as we come into this passage. Uh, I want us to think about the fact that God really, truly became a flesh and blood human being, okay? So I'm going to put uh, Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 8 on the screen here. And I want us to just take a couple of moments uh, I'll take enough moment, moments, time, uh, for us to just sort of read through this and just, just give it a little thought, and we'll come back to it again in a few minutes. But just let's start here. Think about this passage for a moment, and then we'll dive into Luke chapter 2. So, as we come to Luke this morning, I want us to see that the account we are about to consider is the beginning of the greatest story about self-sacrificing love that has ever been written. And there is no doubt that the cross of Jesus Christ and His suffering and His death and His resurrection, there is no doubt that that is the high point of greatness and glory for all eternity. But Christ's entire life redefines for us what it means to be great and powerful. And I, and I would suggest, if we look at this, what we come to understand is that the path to greatness, we've got it wrong. We've got it wrong. 
May we, as followers of Jesus Christ, see his birth and understand that our ideas about, uh, about status and honor and, and, and bank accounts and trophies, none of those things cause a myriad of angels to burst in the sky and say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men uh, with whom he is pleased. No, none of our achievements can cause that, and yet what Christ did caused that to happen. Y'all, the story of his birth, we tend to clean it up, you know? The, the, the cleaned up version fits better in the, you know, the Charlie Brown version of the manger scene that's sitting on my piano at home. You know, it fits better. It's, it's prettier. It's, it's cleaner. We, we sing songs about the holy infant, so tender and mild. And uh, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying, he makes. But when we actually look at the text, and that's what we're going to do this morning, the, the text of Luke and the other gospel writers, what we find is an account that is actually filled with scandal and, 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 and suffering, that it begins with an unwed mother who gives birth to a baby in a cave and lays him in a feed trough. The God of the universe becomes a, a real baby boy in, in the midst of great obscurity. So here's my point this morning. I just want to describe for you. I'm going to just tell the story. We will look at a few kind of interesting, maybe misconceptions about the story. But my hope is that by the end, we can redefine our conceptions of greatness. Because what greatness means in God's eyes is that we would be servants of all. Because that's what Christ was. He came as a servant, and we see that right here in his birth. God's pathway to glory goes up, goes down, before it goes up. It's falling and rising, and that's, that's the title of, of where we've been lately, okay? All right, let's dive into the text, uh, familiar text, Luke chapter 2, and the first thing I want us to see this morning is that God controls the hearts of kings. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, this is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. <clears throat> so Luke begins his description of the birth of Christ by referencing the king of the world at the time who is living in Rome. And I don't think this is any coincidence at all. We have the king of kings, the lord of the universe, who is being born in a cave, even as Caesar Augustus reigns from a palace in Rome. Now, here's the interesting thing about Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus uh, was born, um, he was an adopted son of Julius Caesar. His original name was Octavius Caesar. He seized the power from uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, okay? These are all names that we've heard before. And he consolidates the Roman Empire, the Roman power unto himself, and he gives himself the name Augustus Caesar, which means majestic or venerable, okay? So this is the guy uh, who is ruling the world, and why does that matter? Why are we talking about a history of ancient Rome at, at this point, this morning? Well, for two reasons, and I think that Luke intentionally includes this for these two reasons. Number one, notice that Luke is careful to locate his account of the birth of Christ with real people in real places doing real things, okay? If you have been through 10th grade world history, you recognize the names, Caesar and, and Mark Antony and, and, and Cleopatra. These are real people who really lived, all right? They, uh, Luke 
interviewed eyewitnesses. He is very careful to tell us when these things are happening, okay? And so just, just to say this, there are many today who want to say that the Gospels are not historic. The Gospels are not historical fact. And that is, that's baloney, all right? Don't believe it. The, the Gospels are real. Jesus came. Uh, he was God in the flesh. He walked on this earth. He did real things. And, and we can be confident that the faith that we have is, is grounded in real facts, okay? Secondly, I love this, we can be confident that God overrules the hearts of kings because Caesar Augustus stands in a long line of biblical kings who are doing things that they think is for the sake of their own kingdom when really it's for the sake of God's kingdom. So you can think Pharaoh, you can think Nebuchadnezzar, you can think Sennacherib, you can think Cyrus the Great. Again, all of these are real kings doing real things. So Caesar Augustus wakes up one morning in his palace in Rome and he says, hmm, I'm going to have a census because I want to make more money. And how do I make more money? I find out how many people there are and I tax them, okay? All the way in a different part of the world, Mary is pregnant. And, and Micah chapter 5 says that when the Messiah is born, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But Mary lives in Nazareth with her betrothed husband, Joseph. So how in the world are they going to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem to have that baby? Well, Caesar Augustus decided. He has no idea that he is bringing about the birth of Messiah in exactly the way that God said it would happen. He has no idea that he's playing a part in this whole drama. So Caesar Augustus, decide, getting greedy and deciding to make a tax, is part of what God uses to change the world forever. Brothers and sisters, I simply say this. As we come to the end of 2016 and all the different talk of government that we've been subjected to all year long, no matter who sits in the White House or on a throne or anywhere else, God is absolutely in control. And he is absolutely doing exactly what he intends to do. Caesar Augustus, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, all of these people are being used by God, even when they don't know it, to accomplish God's purposes. All right, let's continue on. The birth of the King of Kings, verse 4. So Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Okay, a trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem was about 70 miles, and it would have taken about a week for them to walk there, okay? So let me just help you a tiny bit with geography as we think through this right here. So Galilee is in the north of Israel, and Judea is in the south. Nazareth is in the Galilee, Judea, uh, Bethlehem is in Judea, okay? At that time, Herod, also another name that you've heard, was doing a lot of building in Galilee, and he was making it really safe. It's very rural up there. You can grow your crops. It's a nice place to live. It's kind of like living out in the suburbs, okay? So a lot of people, a lot of Jews were moving from the city, which is Judea, Jerusalem, up into Galilee where it was very comfortable to live, okay? That's where Mary and Joseph lived. They lived up there in the north in, in Nazareth. But, but in order to register, uh, we'll talk about this in just a second, Joseph is going to have to go up. Now, he's going to go south. He's literally going to go up into the hills and the mountains uh, to go to Bethlehem, which is down in 
Judea, okay? So just this is what I want to do. I want to try to take on three misconceptions from this story. I want to just look at the text, and I think that these will help the story actually become more glorious, okay? But they're things that we've sort of cleaned up to sort of make a little more reasonable for our sensibilities, okay? So let's just, let's just walk through this. Let me, let me take three of them right now, okay? Number one, first misconception that a lot of people have. Mary did not give birth to Jesus the night they arrived in Bethlehem, all right? It's right there in the text. We can, we can look at it in the text. So maybe you've had this in your mind, because I used to have, when I was growing up, I used to have this in my mind as well, because this is kind of how the story gets told. Jo- Joseph comes home from work. He's been, uh, you know, making tables, and he comes home, and he, gets, he goes to the mailbox, and there's a letter from the RCB, the Roman Census Bureau, and it says, Joseph, we need you in Bethlehem on December 25th, and bring Mary. And Joseph's like, oh, no, she is going to hate this. And he goes into the house, and he says, Mary, I'm going to need you to get on the donkey. We have to go to Bethlehem right now. And she's like, but December 25th is my due date. And he's like, no, but I got this letter. There's nothing I can do about it. And so off they go. And so a week later, it's a week's trip. So they would have left today, let's say, December 18th. They'll get there next Sunday, and they come rolling into town, and she is just about to give birth at any moment, okay? This is not the way it happened, all right? So just to be clear, Joseph would have had some time to get to Bethlehem. Censuses weren't that specific. So at some point, he needed to go down to Bethlehem to register. Maybe he had months. Maybe he even had a little bit longer. But notice that each man is to go to his own town. Just think of that like his hometown, which means Joseph is from Bethlehem. Apparently, at some point, his family had moved up north into Nazareth, uh, perhaps for work, perhaps because it's nicer, and Joseph is going to have to go back down to Bethlehem to register, okay? Look at verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So clearly they had already been there at least some time before she goes into labor. Now, we can't say how long, but they were in the town before she gave birth. Let me give you another more likely scenario. Things in Nazareth probably weren't good. As far as everyone in Nazareth is concerned, Mary was pregnant before she was married. And this would have been a scandal. It was very scandalous in that culture. Mary and Joseph are living in shame even though they don't deserve it. Yeah, sure, Mary says that she, she has been impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Joseph says that he has had a, a visit from an angel. Nobody believes that then any more than we would believe that now. Okay? And so everybody's like, yeah, sure, right. You guys, are, you guys are living in shame. Joseph is from Bethlehem. And so I suspect he thinks if I can just get back there at some point, I've got to go there to register anyway, we will go there and we can, we can sort of live this out. The indication seems to be from other places in the text, they were moving to Bethlehem. Okay? All right, so that's the first thing. They're in town. They're probably there to live and that's where she gives birth. Secondly, and this one, this, this is going to ruin a couple of Christmas plays. I know this. There's no innkeeper, all right? There's no innkeeper in the story. There's no innkeeper's wife. Somehow she kind of, you know, finds a way to, to weasel herself in. You know, it's like, we need another fifth grade girl part. Let's have, a, let's have an innkeeper's wife, okay? There's no, there's no innkeeper's wife in the story either. So this is perhaps how you've thought of this, because again, this is how I used to think of it. 
Mary and Joseph arrive into town, into Bethlehem, late at night. You know, they're sort of, they're coming in down Abercorn. You know, she's on the donkey. There's, it's bustling. It's crowded. Everybody's racing to try to get to the RCB office. And they're, they're trying to get there in time so that they can register. And they're just going down the road. And, and all along the way, you know, it's like Motel 6, Holiday Inn, you know, Clarion. They're, you know, uh, no vacancy, no vacancy, no vacancy. And finally, they get to the end of the road. And there's like one kindly innkeeper and his wife. And, and they're like, well, we can't help you. We got nothing, but we got a stable out back. And Joseph's like, I'll take it. And boom, they go in there and they have the baby. All right? Okay. Again, get, uh, get Motel 6. Take Motel 6 out of your mind. All right? Bethlehem was a tiny town, first of all. People were not pouring into Bethlehem on December 24th uh, in order to, to register. You're supposed to go to your hometown. So unless you were from, from Bethlehem, you didn't go to Bethlehem. Most people, like probably most people in Nazareth, just went to the wherever in Nazareth to, to register, okay? All right, so Joseph and Mary would have quietly arrived into town at some point, and they would have looked for a place to stay. All right, here's the thing. The word in. We have to talk about the word in. There were not motels in that day. The word for in in the Greek is a, is a word, it's a kataluma, Okay? Literally, it's upper room, okay? Everywhere else in the New Testament, that word is translated upper room. And for some reason, the translators of, of, of our scriptures continue to try to translate this in, okay? Let me describe for you what an upper room was. Over in, in Israel, still today, they would build stone houses, and they would have flat roofs. And on the top of that roof, if you were a, if you were a poor family, you might have a tent up there where people could go up there. But Depending on how wealthy you were, you might have a bigger room or a bigger room. It could be a guest room. It could even be a banquet hall. Y'all, the word for upper room when Jesus is having the Last Supper with his disciples is the same word, okay? So they were in a cataluma when they had the Last Supper, okay? The cataluma was a place of honor. It was a place for hospitality, it was a place to put your honored guests because hospitality was a very big deal in that culture. So Mary and Joseph, again, Joseph's coming home. They are probably suspecting that they're going to be able to stay in the Cataluma, okay? Here's what's interesting. That there was no room for them in the inn could be translated, the inn was no place for them. The upper room was no place for them. Now, we don't know why. Perhaps it was the shame. Perhaps Joseph's family said, uh, I'm sorry, you know, she's pregnant. We can't do that. Perhaps it was already full. But apparently they came into town, extended relatives, friends, whoever it was, and someone said, I can't let you stay upstairs, but I have a cave out back. And it was a cave. So these stone houses would have been quarried out of a rock hill. They would have been quarried out of there. At some place in the, in the cave, they would have left... Um, some stone that would be dug out in the middle, and that would be the manger. That was the feeding trough for the animals. So some, somebody took it upon themselves to offer Mary and Joseph a cave when they arrived in Bethlehem, and, and, and Joseph would have been doing the best he could to get that clean before the baby was born. All right, one more thing, and this one's shorter. Little Lord Jesus cried. He cried just like any other newborn. 
And I think it's so interesting. I was struck by this again this week. Verse 7, the, the birth of the king of kings is described in the scriptures with one verse, which tells me this. It can be described as normal. It was absolutely normal. He was a baby. He was a baby just like you and me. He cried. He needed his diaper changed. He did not have a halo when he came out of the womb, okay? He never had a halo. Get this. Jesus was a normal baby who knew only what normal babies know, which means he wasn't laying there looking up at Mary and Joseph being like, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking because I can read your mind. It's, that's not happening, okay? Uh, later on, we'll see Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew up just like any of us would have grown up. He skinned his knees. He never, like, you know, created a little pigeon out of mud and blew on it and had it fly away to impress his friends. That never happened, all right? Jesus was a normal baby with a normal childhood. If we could go back in time to that night, we would find a cave with a teenage couple doing the best they could with a brand new baby. No grandparents to help, no nurses, no doctors. And I would suggest to you, for Mary, this is just the first in 30 years of experiences that would just rip her heart out as she raised Jesus and then saw him become a man. But to take away from that is to take away the humility and the glory of what it was when God actually became a human being. Let's keep looking further. Let's look at the birth announcement. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You may have heard somebody say, you know, well, it's impossible that Jesus was actually born in December because the shepherds were out in the fields. There's no indication that the shepherds took the winter off. There were always sheep. The sheep had to be tended. If you were a shepherd... You went out in the fields, whether it was raining or whether it was cold or whatever was going on. We don't know when exactly Jesus was born. It could have been December. It could have been May. We just don't know. But this much we know. For the third time in the book of Luke, an angel appears to people, and they have the same response as everybody else. They were filled with fear. This is just a bunch of guys out watching their their sheep, And all of a sudden, the the sky lights up, and there is one angel who has a message for them. And he says, fear not. Behold, I bring you good tidings, good news. Sorry, memorized the King James when I was like 10. Uh, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Don't be afraid. I have great news. For 4,000 years, spiritual darkness has been on the earth, and it's about to go away. Satan is about to be dethroned. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, God made a promise to the serpent, with Adam and Eve standing nearby listening. And he said, I will put 
between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and her offspring, he shall, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. She shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That promise is about to be made good right now. And that's, that's the announcement that the angel has. And it's interesting, too, because the angel says, here's a sign. Okay, so maybe, maybe the angel knows that they're thinking, ah, oh, we've got to find a baby. Which baby are you talking about? Well, let me give you a sign. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's not the sign. All babies were wrapped in swaddling clothes. You will find the baby lying in a manger. Y'all, this would have been as disturbing to them as it would be to us, because this would be the equivalent of saying, you can go down the road here, and you will find a large bowl for feeding dogs. And you'll know it's the baby because the baby is in that feed bowl. That's the shocking truth about where Jesus was when he was born. And up till then, it's only been one angel. But at that announcement, the sky explodes. It's like, I, I, you know, I, again, you know, Bill mentioned sanctified imagination last week, so here we go. I'm like picturing all the angels are like, oh, I want to go make this one. I want to go make this announcement. And, you know, it's the, the one, and he goes and makes the announcement, and he gets to the end of the announcement, and they're like, we can't help it. Ah, glory to God in the highest. This is so awesome. So the sky explodes with angels. So the angels, it's so interesting to me that the first creatures to recognize the glory of what has happened are angels. The Bible says they long to look into salvation like we know it. Luke, later on, Luke chapter 15, he's going to say that when one sinner repents, the angels in heaven celebrate. And so as they're watching salvation unfold, they burst into praise at the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Verse 15, when the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at the shepherds who told them. I love the response of the shepherds. If an angel appears to you in the middle of your workday and says, the Savior of the world has been born, get up and go now, you don't say, I don't get off for another four hours, uh, let's just hang out here, and then when the you know, morning crew comes, they'll take over and we'll go see. No, they leave the, the sheep, all right? I mean, that's, that's all you can really uh, understand here. They leave the sheep in the fields, they trust them to God, and they go to see the baby that has been announced to them. Y'all, the first visitors to the King of Kings are lowly shepherds. The religious and political elite, are they're asleep in Jerusalem a few miles away. They don't know that the King of Kings has come. I, you know, I, we're supposed to be in Luke, and this is in Matthew, but it's just so interesting to me that when, when the Magi, when the wise men arrive, however long later, and they come and they knock on the door, and you know, as you can just picture somebody opening the door to Jerusalem and being like, yes, and they, uh, we've come to celebrate the birth of the King of Kings. You know, and they close the door and they go and they talk. It says that Herod, you know, go, they go and look at them and they're like, well, if he's here, he's in Bethlehem. They don't know. They haven't heard. So the first people who get to see the birth of the King of Kings are lowly shepherds and Gentile wise men, which goes perfectly 
with the theme that we've already talked about, that this is a story about insiders standing around on the outside, not knowing what's going on, while outsiders are received and welcomed with joy. It's the people you don't expect who are able to recognize that the King of Kings has come. Finally, 19 and 20, but Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Two quick, interesting statements here that Luke finishes up with. First of all, regarding Mary, Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. I take from that that this is probably an account coming from Mary herself. Uh, again, Luke was interviewing eyewitnesses. We've talked about that. I think there's a good chance that he came to Mary. And this was the story that she had to tell. And she remembered all the details of that night. But secondly, I think it's interesting here, she treasures these things in her heart. Y'all, this is hard. I mean, again, a cave, a teenage girl, no mom. She's given birth. This is hard. But she treasures these things. And, and here's what I take from that, and I hope this is an encouragement for some of you this morning. What I take from that is this. When we are people who willfully accept God, obeying God, and living the life that He has called for us, and, and when things get difficult, the grace of God is there to sustain us. And it is good. This is hard, but it is good. Maybe, maybe you know, as Luke is just, you know, trying to gather information, you know, Mary, would you, would you do it again? Ah, well, man, I would hate to have to go through it again. But boy, did I love the way God carried me. And I've treasured that all of my life. Maybe that resonates with some of you this morning. Maybe it resonates with some of you as you have stood for what is right, as you have stood for the truth, as you have lived your life for Christ, even amidst opposition, and you can say, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's very hard sometimes, but the joy comes in knowing I, I treasure the fact that God carries me as I submit to His will. The second thing is this, the lives of the shepherds were changed. These are simple shepherds. The Word of God says that they went home and they were glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. So this morning, I, I have two simple points of conclusion because this is my prayer for us. This is my prayer for every single one of us as we leave here this morning. My prayer is that we could look at this oh-so-familiar story, but that we could go from here this morning glorifying and praising God for the things that we have heard. All right? So just two things as we consider this story as a whole. First of all, number one, I want us to think about the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph. I don't want to take them for granted in this story. Just, just think about this with me. What if this was your son or daughter? What if this was your brother or your sister or your friend? What if this was you and you were called to bear this burden of raising the Son of God? How would you respond? And don't answer too quickly. You see, there was going to be a wedding. Joseph had asked Mary to marry him. And so he had gone home to his father's house because that's what you did. Once you had a bride-to-be, you went home to your father's house and you built a room for her. And you made it real nice. And while you were gone, Mary, she was making herself ready for the wedding because she can't wait for the bridegroom 
to come back. And so when Joseph was finished, he would have gathered his buddies. Bible refers to them as the friends of the bridegroom. And they would have started a parade going to Mary's house. And there would have been singing and dancing. Anybody who was, you know, carrying groceries in the street would have sat them down and clapped and sung with everybody else. It was a huge celebration. It was, it was a wedding parade, okay? And so as they approached Mary's house, one of the friends of the bridegroom would have called out, the bridegroom's here, are you ready? And Mary, who had gotten herself ready, would have, would have gone out to meet him and there would have been a celebration for days, possibly even a week, and then they would have gone back to his father's house where they would live forever. Go read John 14 later and think about all that. Uh, but for now, let's stay with this story. For Mary and Joseph, there was no wedding. For Mary and Joseph, all Joseph could do was go and quietly get his pregnant bride, cancel the invitations, send back the gifts, take her home, and live with her until she gave birth to this baby. Mary had said, remember we saw it last week, Luke chapter 1, she said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And so now here she is. She's in a cave alone in Bethlehem, a long way from her home in Nazareth. By the way, y'all, the whispers will never go away. In John 8, 41, during the last two years of Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees say to Jesus, we are not born of sexual immorality, implying that he is. So all those years later, the rumors persist. Mary and Joseph knew better than any of us, better than anyone, what it meant to have Jesus change your life. You may think Mary and Joseph did what anybody would do. I suggest to you, Mary and Joseph, by the grace of God, did what very few people do, which is live out their faith in obedience to the, to the, to the Word of God that they knew. I, I love this quote by Russell Moore. He says this about the faith of Joseph. In believing God, Joseph probably walks away from his reputation. The wags in his hometown would probably always whisper about how poor Joseph was hoodwinked by that girl or how Joseph got himself in trouble with that girl. Joseph certainly walks away from economic security. He surrenders a household economy, a vocation probably built up over generations and handed, him down, handed down to him by his father. Joseph and Mary did the hard things, even though there are probably lots of people saying, that's crazy, you're ruining your life. But Jesus says in Mark 8.35, and I think Joseph you know, had an inkling of this even before his, his adopted son will speak it 30 years later. Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. We are called to lose our lives for the sake of Christ. We are called to do the things that Jesus has called us to do, no matter the consequences. And we can look at Mary and Joseph and we can see, talk about going down to go up. Talk about falling in order to rise. These are two people who suffered for their commitment to Christ. Secondly, let's just consider the path of greatness that was chosen by our Lord. We've sanitized the story. We have. Because it's a story that we include donkeys and innkeepers and meek and mild babies and clean straw and cows a-lowing. And, 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 and we water it down. And, and if we clean it up, we lose some of what Luke is trying to show us. And the actual facts are actually incredibly marvelous. 
He was born of a virgin. Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, just as was predicted 400 years earlier. The Son of God came in the midst of scandal in a cave to a teenage girl in relative obscurity, and he was laid in a feed trough. And he cried, and he was cold, and he needed his diaper changed. The truth of the matter is, y'all, if Jesus had come from heaven to be born to kings and queens and palaces, that would have been humiliating for him. And yet he came and he humbled himself beyond anything that you or I can imagine. Let's look at Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 8 again. Have this mind in yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus' birth was just the first step in a life that was lived, a glorious life, a life of self-giving love. Y'all, we talk a lot about identity these days. You know, people take identity in their bank account and in their grades and their jobs and honors and all of those things. We talk about that our identity is in Christ as it should be, but do you know what Christ's identity was? Christ came and He identified as a servant. And He didn't just serve sometimes. He served all the time. He was characterized as a servant. And the Bible tells us it was the greatest life that has ever been lived. Look at verse 9 in Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Y'all, self-giving, sacrificial love is the greatest power in the universe. Jesus' self-giving, sacrificial love on the cross freed us from our sins and freed us from death. Y'all, we can have that same power. We need to redefine greatness. We need to flip it over on its head because that's what Jesus does for us. We think of great, greatness as accomplishing things. We think of greatness as having things. Is it possible that sin has so clouded our view of what it means to be great that we have misunderstood? Don't be deluded. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ came in humility. He came as a servant and He was exalted by the Father. And that's the same promise we have, right? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. How great will it be? How great will it be to arrive in heaven having humbled ourselves before God and to have Him say, no, no, you stand up. I will exalt you. You humbled yourself in life. You, you lived the life of a servant through faith. Now, now I will exalt you. What a great day that will be. To close, let me close with this. Jesus, later on in the book of Luke, we'll get there eventually. Some of his disciples are arguing. This happens all the time. It actually happens. It's so weird. Every time Jesus, I, I, I think I can pretty much say this for sure. When Jesus is talking about that he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die on the cross, his disciples in the very next paragraph are arguing about who's the greatest. It's, it's got to be intentional. And so he, they're all arguing about who's the greatest, who's going to get to sit at his right hand, whatever. And Jesus stops, and he always addresses them. But this is what I think is interesting. He never says, why are you wanting to be great? 
He never rebukes them for wanting to be great. What he does is he redefines greatness. So as we close, look at Mark 10, 42. Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. May we follow his example and seek him for glory's sake. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for what it says. Thank you for the power of self-sacrificing, self-giving love. Lord, would you reveal to us, would you give us mercy so that we can know something of that. Clear our minds of the fog of sin so that we can see greatness as you have defined it for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his birth. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that he is alive and seated next to you right now. We praise his name. Amen. We want you to stay seated for a moment. We're going to have a song that very much brings out some of the very uh, thoughts and concepts that we've just looked at here in the book of Luke. So uh, as, as this song is sung, just think about some of the things that we've heard and, and keep them within the context of, of what it meant that God became a man.